This week on the show, we cover FreeBSD performance observability, an article by Clara Systems, the advanced BSD thoughts, part one of two, Lumina desktop maintainership changes, how to handle secrets on the command line, uh, like NetBSD, Dragonfly now has a COVID command, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 412, Command Line Secrets, recorded on the 14th of July, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Yes, Alan is back uh, this week and probably next week as well. So it's a nice change of pace between different moderators. And we have great headlines, as always, for you in this episode. Let's jump right in. They are from Clara Systems. The first one, FreeBSD Performance Observability. Yeah, this is slightly funny because Tom wrote this. <laughs> and he's not here to do it. But I'm talking about it. Well, on the week when Tom's not here. Anyway, so in a previous article of... Uh, on our website there, uh, we did a deep dive into the strengths of FreeBSD. We covered some of the many reasons why you might choose FreeBSD uh, from a high-level perspective. But on that note, let's take a look deeper into FreeBSD from a performance and a performance observability perspective. So by observability, we mean the ability to observe what is happening on a live system, and in many cases, to alter that behavior uh, of the system in real time. While there are myriad performance analysis tools available for purchase, you cannot understate the value of tools that are specifically built for and uh, into an operating system. Tools which understand and are built into the operating system and its kernel structures can give you uh, much richer data. Pretty much everything a FreeBSD system does right down to the system call level is tracked. Each utility on the system gathers what is needed for this pool of information. For example, uh, information is queried when you run ifconfig or zpool status. Uh, you can gather the information you need in order to get the most out of your system, determine your operational baselines, and find and resolve any performance bottlenecks. So a few years ago at, I think it was MeetBSD, Brett and Greg gave an excellent talk on FreeBSD's performance analysis tools. Uh, the videos and slides are available on his blog as well. In the following image, he provided an overview of FreeBSD's system components and what observability tools FreeBSD has for those. Uh, so, you know, you have the application layer and then the system libraries and then the system call interface. And, you know, you can use things like Truss or Ktrace to see what's happening as those applications make those system calls. And then you have the VFS layer where you can use things like fstat. And then you have file systems like UFS and ZFS. And ZFS has all kinds of tools like zpool iostat and especially in 13 and later where we have OpenZFS 2.0, uh, you can get a lot more latency and histograms and stuff out of ZFS. Then you have uh, Geom layer with my favorite tool, GStat, uh, which lets you see what each, each of your disks is doing as far as IOPS and what type of operations and what the latencies are. Uh, and then you have the block driver interface where you can use IOSTAT to actually see, you know, the disk DA7 is, is reading and writing this many megabytes per second or whatever. And then down into the device drivers, where you can use things like vmstat-i to see how many interrupts are being raised by your network card every second, and things like that. Uh, basically, it allows you to see all the components of your system, look at one, and then see what commands will tell you what's happening with that component. Yeah, it's nice to fit it all in one picture. 
Uh, so for this article, Tom focused on two specific tools, sysctl, which allows you to get a lot or, you know, set in a, a lot of tunables, but also it provides access to a lot of stats. And he kind of shows how you can do things like looking at uh, network tuning, if you want to control the amount of uh, send and receive space for the socket buffers and things like that. And then, you know, the man pages for a lot of different uh, drivers and so on will have information about driver specific sysctls for tuning. You know, if you look up the, the manual page for your network card, uh, it talks about, you know, how you control how many queues uh, are created by the card when you boot and things like that. And then it talks about dtrace, which in addition to being able to trace things in the FreeBSD kernel with the statically defined tracing, like we talked about for the network stack a couple of weeks ago, and the uh, boundary tracing, you know, when functions are starting and ending and so on, you also can do uh, user space tracing with dtrace. So a lot of tools like Postgres, Memcache, Erlang, TCL, Perl, PHP, LLDP, Node.js, etc., have a dtrace compile time option to add more dtrace probes uh, to themselves. So you can actually find out what's happening in the application as well. Uh, and so he talks about some examples of using that, just figuring out what the different sections are. So there's different dtrace providers that provide these trace points. For example, DT Malik provides uh, dtrace uh, probes for all the memory management stuff. Uh, there's ones for I.O., ones for IP, ones for locks, the mandatory access control framework, uh, NFS clients, uh, privilege controls, process operations, the resource accounting and resource limiting stuff, the CPU scheduler, syscalls, all have probes, etc. cetera. Uh, and so he also shows you how you can uh, use DWatch, which is a handy wrapper tool that contains a lot of pre-built dtrace tooling so that you don't have to go look up some one-liners and try to write your own descripts. Uh, it's a whole bunch of really handy ones all built together. Uh, using that, you can monitor, say, TCP activity with dwatch-capital-x uh, TCP, and it automatically looks for, you know, connection established, connection refused, and a bunch of other different uh, probe points. Or you can watch uh, the open syscall and see which applications are opening which files, uh, which can be quite useful. Yeah, let's find this last uh, writer to the disk that prevents the unmount or something, right? This right. Is or, you know, I see a lot of files being opened uh, and closed a lot. I'd like to see who's doing that. Yeah. Uh, so just fire up some dtrace or dwatch in this case and say, tell me who's opening what. Uh, and then you can filter that down. It's like something keeps using this file and I would like to know who it is. And, you know, you can find out what the name of the process is and what it was doing. Mm -hmm. Very useful to learn about the operating system and what, what's it doing on a day-to-day -day basis or should be doing. So like uh, the article says, there's uh, plenty of examples in the DWatch man page. Plus there's a FreeBSD wiki page called DTrace One-Liners with lots of useful starting points. You can always, you know, once you learn the syntax, you can easily modify them to get different or more information or filter it however you want. But they're a really nice starting place. But there's also the Dtrace on FreeBSD page, which has a lot more information about how it works. The Illumos guides to Dtrace are all very good and explain a lot of the stuff like the aggregation tools and so on to, to make histograms. And then Brett and Greg's FreeBSD performance checklist article about the use method is also very good. So FreeBSD provides so many observability points that with a bit of digging, it should be possible to pinpoint the cause of any bottleneck performance issue. But the team at Clara is available to help if you aren't able to figure out where the problem is coming from yourself or just would like to have the experts jump in and, and figure it out for you. Yeah, it's a good start to digging deeper.
Okay, our next article is a series of two, which will span over this episode and the next one, because it's a two-parter and it's better to uh, spread it out. So it's about advanced BSD. It's advanced exclamation mark BSD. Thoughts on a not-for-profit project to support BSD. And this is over at erielinux.wordpress.com. And um, so this article was a byproduct or by-posted to Gemini and the web, apparently. So this is at the beginning. Um, but it starts with, there are multiple reasons why I'm a BSD user and enthusiast. One thing, I enjoy using systems where design benefits from the holistic approach, like HoloS versus kernel plus some packages. I've come to appreciate things like good documentation, preference of simplicity over unnecessary complexity, and permissive licensing. There's a different spirit to the community that makes me feel more at home. Well, and truth be told, I do have a heart for outsiders who are doing well but get far less attention due to the towering popularity of a certain other system. In addition to that, I'm very uh, much concerned about the new de facto monopoly in open source. While the product BSD community is far less fragmented than what you know from the Linux ecosystem, it's also much smaller. Considering the little manpower that the BSD projects have, they're doing an outstanding job. But a lot of people seem to agree on the fact that due to the small amount of resources available, the BSDs are pretty far away from maximizing their full potential. There are in fact a lot of people out there who'd like to help improve the situation. But coordination of volunteer effort is hard. Linux is what Linux is for a substantial part due to corporate funding. And while there are also companies that support BSD, the question is, could we probably do better? And so here's the question about a non-profit BSD, well, with a non-profit in brackets, so this is optional, um, a non-profit BSD first service provider. And after thinking about this for quite a while, uh, the author here finally just asked on Reddit what other people thought about such a project. And they've been blown away by the response. So this is the link to the Reddit uh thread here, of course, and why they had hoped that most people would agree that this would be an interesting thing or even consider supporting it, it had not anticipated that the most popular option on the poll would be the one where people express their interest in the project with the prospect of perhaps participating actively in getting it started. So this is not about a single BSD, this is about all the BSDs. And a lot of projects struggle for years to find people who might be willing to join. With projects that weren't even started yet and thus have nothing to show off, it's even harder to get some attention. Getting 20 people to support the cause in just one day was quite a surprise for them. Sure, that's only a poll on uh, vote on Reddit and thus completely without any obligation, but let's assume that one-fourth would actually join such a project and contribute. Five people is not bad at all. Depending on what skills they bring, even in two or three might suffice to get something started, further increasing the odds that more people join in. The hardest part is getting a project that they yeah, find people interesting or that finding people who are willing to pioneer that and make something that sounds interesting actually work well. And so why advanced BSD? The name is just a working title, by the way. Uh, it won't insist on uh, yeah that. <laughs> in fact, it's pretty sure that something better could easily be found. Yeah, it's just a working title. Okay, so recently there has been two longer discussions also on Reddit about what the BSDs lack to be more competitive. Uh, there were a lot of great ideas and they are one of the people who'd like to see at least some of them being implemented eventually. But let's be realistic, this is not very likely to happen. There's enough work going on regarding the must-haves and when developers decide to work on a nice-to-have, it'll be something that they want. If they really want to see some things not very high priority on the various projects eventually land, we need to take care of that ourselves. If you're a developer with the required skills and enough free time, great. Nobody can really stop you. If you aren't, eh, too bad. And so it talks a bit about 
uh, more about the possibilities of crowdfunding such efforts and what's available today to do this. And uh, yeah, and also if you are like the BSDs, if you like the BSDs, you're almost certainly an IT person and you're already quite deep in tech and love tech. Um, we use email, almost everybody has his or our own homepage, which means we need domains, we need DNS, we need web space, etc. And we get that from service providers, and some of which are somewhat BSD friendly, many of which are not. And even cloud providers, for example, that offer BSD as an option, usually don't do that because they love it and regularly show that. <laughs> so, and then talks about, you know, what kind of services they could provide. And uh, uh, at the bottom uh, here, they, they reiterate that which BSD operating system. Uh, so they did a follow-up poll, apparently, and asked people interested in a project about which BSDs they are proficient with. And considering the general market share with BSDs, it came to no surprise that BSD with 32 uh, answers uh, was the top one. Next came OpenBSD with 19, and NetBSD, Dragonfly BSD with three votes each. And then there were multiple BSDs uh, with four votes and not interested in other with also four votes. Okay. Then they're talking about problems with the not-for-profit status. So the pro here is the that it ensures that nobody involved in it could ever become greedy and try to sabotage the original idea of providing money to support the BSDs. It will also protect such an organization from becoming attractive for buyout for a for-profit competitor, should it go well. There would be the benefits regarding taxes, and they'd imagine that it gives a good feeling to the customers, which would be turned into a competitive advantage. The contra points are that the price to pay is inflexibility. A not-for-profit can donate money only to another not-for-profit organizations, and that very likely only in the country that it was formed in. Yes, that's true. Uh, with uh, FreeBSD Foundation, for example, and the OpenBSD Foundation, they have the potential organizations that we might want to donate to. However, one is US-based while the other is Canadian. A for-profit company is free to spend money however it wishes. There might be other limitations that uh, they're not aware of. Going with not-for-profit would require consulting lawyers up front. And then they talk about a potential federated model and uh, yeah, some further thoughts that's in the next article or in the next week's <laughs> part. It's an interesting idea. It's probably complicated, but... It would repeat a lot of yeah. things that the individual foundations for the projects have done. That it would also fair to just mention the NetBSD project foundation. Yeah, but like the model of doing it as a something where you're actually getting a service out of it uh, makes it a bit easier to convince people to pay that maybe can't just make a donation. And I guess it's somewhat interesting to... If you don't have the restrictions that, uh, that a nonprofit does, doing it more in the, when you pay for the service and donate or whatever, those dollars vote towards which of the, the projects you might want to work on, whether that's, you know, better desktop support or, you know, Wi-Fi specifically or, or whatever. Yeah. And it would certainly require representation uh, in equal parts of the projects. And that's difficult. Well, not necessarily. Like if, if each person indicates their preference when they're, signing up then it yeah so then you would definitely yeah that could be done yeah i'm just saying that it would be fair to have equal representation on the decisions that what the company spends money on or what kind of projects it undertakes but yeah again we will explore this next week and uh, look for further ideas or developments that happen in the meantime
All right, time for a news roundup this week. We have a maintainership change for you in the Lumina desktop environment. Yeah, uh, so here we have a post from Ken Moore saying, after more than seven years of work, I've decided that it's time to let others take over the development of the Lumina desktop project going forward. Uh, it has been an incredible task, which has pushed me into areas of development that I never previously considered. However, with work and life changes, my time for developing new uh, functionality for Lumina has become nearly non-existent particularly with the change from Qt5 to Qt6, requiring a lot of maintenance work uh, that will be coming up in the next year or so. Uh, so by passing the torch over to JT, uh, Q5sys is the producer of BSD Now, I'm hoping that the project might receive more timely updates uh, for the benefit of everyone. So thank you all, and I hope for the continued success of the Lumina desktop project. Yeah, it's good that if people don't have time anymore, that they pass the torch to someone else who has more time or can... Uh, take over and it doesn't mean that people cannot come back it's just that they see their brainchild in this case um, handed over to uh, to other hands to to feed it and to nurture it uh, and then kind of as a addendum to that uh, jt has a post here about studying the past if you would like to define the future he says before we discuss the lumina desktop today let's first go back and discuss uh, where it came from the Lumina desktop was started in 2012 by Ken Moore. He started working on it in his free time. He wanted to design a small, lightweight desktop for PCBSD that didn't uh, come with the challenges of dealing with Linuxisms. Whereas, you know, Cording continued to try to use one of the typical Linux desktops like GNOME or KDE or Mate or whatever. Um, those were all focused on uh, Linux. However, instead of designing a desktop that had BSDisms in it, he decided to design a desktop that was OS agnostic as possible uh, with as few dependencies as possible. So in time, Lumina became the default desktop for PCBSD. In early 2014, the Lumina code from the PCBSD uh, Git repo moved over to GitHub and it became its own project. JT met Ken for the first time in the summer of 2014 at Southeast Linux Fest. JT and Noah Chalaya uh, had gone to the Southeast Linux Fest to cover the conference for the Linux Action Show, which uh, used to be on Jupiter Broadcasting along with BSD Now. But JT got chatting with Ken uh, for about 10 minutes about a variety of things. And when, uh, when he learned that there was, uh, or that JT had been a puppy Linux developer at the time, and that I liked small, efficient, and minimal systems, he asked what desktop I used. While explaining the whys behind my use of Openbox, he had this almost uh, ghoul girl-esque smirk on his face. So after a few minutes, I stopped and asked him what, he, what was so funny. He chuckled and let me know that he was writing a small minimal desktop himself and proceeded to show me his laptop where he had a very early version of Lumina. I asked him what version it was and he was like, it's too early, we don't have version numbers yet. So he's like, okay, so it's 0 0.4 then. So after getting home from self and getting settled back into the schedule, I eventually got it um, Lumina compiled and running on a Slackware box. From that point, I helped Ken with fuzzing the desktop and reporting bugs. Uh, the majority of the issues turned out to be uh, really weird ones due to differences between how Qt is built on Linux and FreeBSD. I think the most hilarious one was being able to crash the file manager by opening it and hitting down, down, enter. Uh, I could reproduce it like clockwork on Linux, but it worked perfectly fine on FreeBSD. Didn't have the issue. Eventually, the necessity of being able to reproduce each other's bugs caused me to get involved in the PCBSD project. Uh, I worked with that project up through its name change into TrueOS. 
and then later after the sunsetting of TrueOS Desktop. At that point, Ken and I created Project Trident to give the current TrueOS Desktop users something uh, somewhere to land. Uh, the work continued on Project Trident up through 2019, uh, when it then transitioned to being a Linux-based OS. Uh, Project Trident has lived on as a desktop variant of Void Linux. Then of course 2020 happened, and then 2021, and uh, you know, everybody's priorities are a bit different now. But so where are things going from here? Well, there's a lot I want to do with Lumina. There's a few things I'm in the middle of that I need to finish, and there's a bunch of other things that I just haven't uh, started yet. But before I get into the breakdown of the future of Lumina, let me address one thing that's been uh, hounded the project in the last couple of weeks about will Lumina be relicensed uh, to use the GPL? And he says, I gotta be honest, I don't expect to get so many questions about this so quickly. Ken has been asked a bunch over the last couple of years, but the number of times I've been asked this week is kind of hilarious. It's almost as if someone uh, got on the GPL bat phone and said, the BSD guy has stepped back, the Linux guy is in charge now, go, go, go. But first off, he says, the maintainer of the project is not the copyright holder. I can't just go relicense other people's code, even if I wanted to, but he doesn't want to. So no, it will stay BSD licensed because that's better. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean you can't use it on Linux. It's, it lets you use it on both. It's yeah. <laughs> anyway, so some of the things they want to clean up is making more of the user icons customizable, want to get a wallpaper creator sorted out, a panel web search widget, uh, so that you can have search built into your taskbar or whatever, fix up the font viewer, uh, make a quick limited text viewer and image viewer, uh, make a bunch of other panel widgets, make the current Trident theme the default theme for Lumina, uh, integrate the icon theme, bring Lumina-Notify back, and work on the Lumina website. It's not really Lumina desktop related, but the website needs a refresh. Then there's the big stuff. Uh, converting all the build stuff over to CMake instead of QMake. Uh, and then by then we'll need to convert from Qt5 to Qt6. Uh, and then there's the Lumina file manager, the Lumina config tool, getting to version 2.0 of the window manager and start uh, prepping it to work with Wayland. Yeah, it's coming eventually. Uh, and they would also look to reduce the number of if defs uh, and make things uh, less you know, BSD versus Linux in a, a bunch of the code. Okay. So, yeah, good luck. Interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, uh, we'll watch this, of course, because <laughs> I guess JT will occasionally drop in some news into our show notes that we can report about if there's something to report. <laughs> so you heard it here first. Um, next up, we have how to handle secrets on the command line over at smallstep.com. So uh, called Tashian. I guess that's the name, uh, writes about uh, that the command line really wasn't designed for secrets. So keeping secrets secret on the command line requires some extra care and effort. The other day in his home lab, he was configuring a TLS client certificate for a Grafana data source. The intention was to write something he could run on a timer whenever the certificate is renewed. The command needed to first build some JSON with the renewed certificate and private key injected into it. And second, put it to, like the web put, uh, put it to a Grafana's API to update the data source configuration. So he thought uh, he was being very clever when he wrote this little bash pipeline, like creating a bearer token with some, you know, crazy mumbo jumbo numbers and uh, characters. Then JQ minus N passing arguments, the CA cert, the client cert, and the client key, and output that to a data source.jq, and then pipe that to curl and put it to the um, 
resulting Grafana data source. Yeah, so basically, in place of all the secrets, he did little subshells, dollar sign, round bracket, in from some file or whatever, uh, so that you know, the secret wouldn't be in the command line. But your shell is then going to interpret those and do the replacements, and the actual command that ends up running and will show up in like PS is going to have the actual secrets in those places. Yeah, and so to make atonement for that, he's writing this post. So he's uh, showing us three methods for handling secrets on the command line using pipe data, credential files, and environment variables. And looks also at the risks of these approaches and how to use each of them as safely as possible. So then he uh, provides a sanitized version of the above pipeline. So that has um, some a little, a little better secrets keeping with, what did, what did he change there? He did the, um, the subshell away, yeah. Yeah, so with the curl one, I think instead of using the subshell thing, usually if you use dash, most tools know that means read standard input. Yeah. Uh, and so you could do it in such a way that it wouldn't end up in PS that way. Of course, having the echo of it would do that, but you can use the shell redirection there and, and usually defeat some of that anyway. Yeah, so the piped secrets there. Uh, a pipeline is generally an excellent way to pass secrets around if the program you're using will accept a secret via standard in. And because a pipe only has two ends, right? Well, if you use T, then it has three or more. Uh, imagine yourself whispering a secret into one end of a pipe and a friend putting their ear up to the other. It's just like that, usually. Um, there's this dollar uh, redirect uh, just from dev standard in leak um, in the above example showing a neat bash substitution. Yes, this is bash uh, only, I guess, to make an otherwise secure pipe insecure. Ah, yes, because then you would put, the, yeah, you would have the secret on the command line as well. Okay, then moving on to credential files. What's not to love about a file? It's got an owner, it has permissions and access control. Give each secret a file. Any program that access secrets should be able to accept them by passing a file name or by redirecting a file into standard in. You can also use files to pass secrets into Docker containers with mounted volumes or jails. A few notes about storing and retrieving file secrets. First, well, you'd better get the permissions right. Second, avoid leaking the secret in the command string, like, oh, secret file.txt. Yeah, well, it's in the secret. Yeah, again, file. if you're using the, well, it's, I think it's, um, if you do the subshell thing to read in the file in the command line, if you do it like they did in the early example with the dollar sign round bracket thing, mm -hmm. it will put the content of the file in PS in the actual command rather than just the file name. You know, leaking uh -huh. the file name, as long as the file name is not just says secret, then that, that's fine. But if you use the subshell thing like they did at the beginning, it's end, going to end up putting the content of the file in their command line. And that obviously means that anybody who can run PS can see mm. the secret. There it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, then make sure that your disk is encrypted at rest. Uh, yeah. yeah. And you may want to encrypt the contents of the file, but then you need to figure out how to handle the encryption key. Yeah. And then there's the right, and also possibly to decrypt the individual file before feeding it to the thing, and then like are you ending up with the secret in slash TMP for a third of a second? Because mm. <laughs> you don't want that either. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Then there's the environment variables. Using environment variables for secrets is very convenient, and we don't recommend it because it's so easy to leak things. Some operating systems still make every process's environment variables world readable. Uh, like slash proc uh, PID environment. Ah, this is not readable. Yeah. 
So in Docker, anyone with access to the Docker daemon can use Docker inspect to see all the environment variables for any running container. Hmm. In system D, environment variables in unit files are available to users via the dbus interface. Oh yeah, there they are. Exported environment variables will get passed to every new process, and then who knows what will happen to them. They might get dumped to standard out or locked to a debug log file. And there they are. Yeah, like uh, a lot of uh, web debugging stuff will dump the entire environment uh, or have some way that you can access those. Like, uh, for we, for example, with PHP, if you run the PHP info command, mm. it'll tell you all about how PHP is compiled, but it also gives you the entire environment that PHP is running with. And if that has all your secret keys in it, whoops. Yeah. And variables can easily end up in shell history. Many shells adding an extra space before a command will exclude it from shell history. Or in bash, the hist control variable must be set to ignore space. Yeah, that <laughs> gives it away. Um, what about a secrets manager further down below the article? Secrets managers can be great because they can make it easier to get secrets closer to where they are used. For example, a Docker container can call out to a secrets manager for its secrets. But a secrets manager is an extra dependency. Often you need to run a secrets manager server and hit an API. And, if, and even with a secrets manager, you may still need Bash to shuttle the secret into your target application. For this post, I'm focused on a more lightweight solution. I've seen people use 1Password on FreeBSD uh, to manage like AWS secret keys for a Python script or something. So the Python script could call out to 1Password uh, and get the key, use it, and then forget it. And it wasn't laying around in the source code that way. Oh, yeah. And then there's obviously directly in the command, like if you use uh, MySQL and create a new user, then there's a dash dash password option. Don't put the password in clear text on that one. Yeah. So uh, an example of that, if you're using the PW command on FreeBSD to set or change, to create a new user or set somebody's password, it has an option to listen on an additional file descriptor. So rather than standard in or standard out or standard error, you can open an extra file descriptor, like file descriptor number three, I think it ends up being. And so you can feed it the plain text password via that separate file descriptor. So it's basically like doing it with a pipe, but doing it to a different file descriptor than the normal one so that you can feed it different information. Uh, and then I think depending on which, if you, I think if you do lowercase h for the password, it's the password it expects. And if it's an uppercase H, it takes the, the already hashed password, depending yeah. on what you have. Or it doesn't, or you, it will prompt the password um, after the command Yeah, is I think there's executed. a way to prompt it interactively. But yeah. obviously, when you're scripting, you don't want to use that. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, you, uh, and, and especially, you don't want to try to just pipe into that prompt that's meant for humans. You want it, because uh, what if it doesn't do it, and then you spat out the password anyway? Yeah. So having it do it on the special file descriptor can be uh, much better. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting way of you know preventing that and letting people not get behind secrets too easily. Then finally, we have uh, following the example of NetBSD, Dragonfly BSD now has the COVID command. <laughs> oh, dear, <laughs> so there's COVID going around with the BSD. It's everywhere. Can't we keep the BSDs out of this? <laughs> so yes, uh, COVID, as in COVID nineteen slash SARS dash Cov two and whatever. There's actually an open source package containing uh, the um, COVID-19 genome and a manual page encouraging vaccination and other steps to help prevent the spread of the virus. So Dragonfly BSD lead developer Matt Dillon ported the utility from NetBSD. Following that commit this weekend and a follow-up patch 
the Sokovi command is now living in Dragonfly BSD. So if you run the COVID utility, uh, which is a simple C program, it will print out the COVID-19 uh, genome and that has been public for a while. And then there's a man page that provides information about COVID-19 and the currently available vaccines and so on. Uh, and they have a link here if you actually want to go just read the uh, the man page. And no, this is not a good entropy source because... It, no, it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> if you're feeding that to, uh, instead of your red dev random, then it's, there's not going to be too much entropy in there <laughs> between runs. Yeah, I wonder if that's... I mean, I, I know the effort is meant right and there's some humor in there as well, uh, but I'm not sure if the utility will live for long. But yeah. Um, it's there and uh, people can use it and uh, learn a little bit more about uh, viruses and uh, the things they do. All right. Um, speaking of viruses and things we should keep safe, or ourselves and our files, we should look at our sponsor for this week, which is Tarsnap. Well, that was a bridge into the <laughs> sponsorship section here. But nevertheless, Tarsnap keeps you safe if you do regular backups. And backups should, like we just discussed how to keep secrets properly. And in this case, Tarsnap ensures that the secrets are kept on your disk and created on your disk before they leave into the internet where everyone is listening. And so Tarsnap takes your files, uh, does a bit of segmentation, deduplication, hashing, compression, which makes them ideally smaller. And then it encrypts and signs them with your own personal key that is also created by the Tarsnap utility very similar to the tar command. If you know the command line, you're fairly familiar with it. And then once all this is done, the encrypted files leave your disk no further, not, not before, only after they are encrypted and they are stored on Tarsnap servers on AWS. And then they sit there and wait and wait and wait. Hopefully you will never need to get back to those files. But if you do, you can use your own personal key again to do the reverse, download them, encrypt, unencrypt them, and then restore the original files back for your backup purposes. Yeah. So importantly, once the files are encrypted and you send them out to the cloud, it doesn't matter if somebody's listening on your connection and sees the encrypted blocks go by, or if they break into Tarsnap or Amazon, or if they're a government and they subpoena the data or whatever, uh, all of it is entirely useless to anybody that doesn't have that key file. So as long as you keep that key file safe, it means that only you can decrypt it. So don't lose the key file because only you can decrypt it. You know, it's it's a feature of Tarsnap that they can't help you if you lose the key. That's how they ensure they can't help anybody else if they want your data. Yep, and that's uh, the paranoia part. The paranoia part is also that you can look at the source code and figure out if there are any backdoors or secret ways to you know circumvent this. Uh, paranoid people would like to look at that and they can search and look, but they won't find anything. Uh, but but not many backup uh, services provide a look behind the scenes how they build the secret sauce. So this is also a feature of Tarsnap. Plus, all the clients are available on uh, your operating system that you're probably using at the moment. Uh, the BSDs, the Linuxes, macOS, Sigwin, and others are available. So there's not an excuse anymore to not run Tarsnap and make backups sooner rather than later. You might regret not doing them. Okay, uh, this is now the feedback and questions section of this episode, and it's full with questions. People keep sending that. That is good. So I don't have to uh, ask further, but uh, 
hopefully we won't run dry too soon with the holiday season coming up or with at least people taking breaks now. Um, the first one is Jim having a question about FreeBSD and KDE or FreeBSD on KDE. And he writes, hi all. I'm a new CMI convert from Linux to FreeBSD. Recently, I bought a used Dell laptop as my daily driver and dual booted it with Debian KDE and FreeBSD KDE. Although the FreeBSD install was semi-painless, I'm still having several minor issues. First, I have searched the BSD manual and inquired to several sources to print to my home network computer without success. Uh, it has a static IP address and every other device like cell phone, tablet, and laptop can print wirelessly to it, including the Debian KDE install, except from the FreeBSD install. It is an older uh, brother model MFC495CW. I see <laughs> I see everyone sitting in front of their printer now checking the model. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not sure if I should be using CUPS, LPR, or something else. I almost certainly CUPS. You know, when I bought my printer a couple of years ago, a Samsung M something something, um, <laughs> I specifically bought a network one because I figured it'd be easier to print from FreeBSD that way uh, if you could just use the IP printing protocol. Uh, so yeah, it should be just cups and telling it the IP address of the printer, and then it should be able to just print to it. There's probably some kind of uh, link level discovery or protocol or something you could use to to find it the way the other devices do. I just I'm not that familiar with doing that on FreeBSD. Uh, but yes, CUPS is the right answer. LPR is for line printing, like when you print one line at a time and usually probably won't work very well with a laser printer. Yeah, and it's probably the same. Uh, it's not about the wirelessly versus wired connection. It should both No, work. IP is IP. Yeah. Once you get to that point. Yeah. Okay, second uh, uh, minor issue. I'm still slightly confused if I'm updating correctly after listening to one of your podcasts. After installing, I was able to upgrade to version 12.2. Okay. I'm not a bleeding edge type person and will upgrade to version 13 in the future, but not now. Oh, perfectly fine. To update the system from the terminal, because I've not explored a bash TypeScript yet, I do the following. sudo freebsd-update fetch install and then sudo package update sudo package upgrade. Yeah, that's the, the dance you would do. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so the first one, freebsd update fetch install, will update you the will fetch the security fixes for the release you're currently on so you're running 12.2 and it'll upgrade from like 12.2 p1 to 12.2 p4 or whatever the latest patch level is but that's all it will upgrade it will only upgrade it will only patch the version you're currently running in place yeah and then and it only covers the operating system then the package upgrade that you do will download the newer applications like you know uh, KDE and Firefox and Cups and everything that you've package installed. So that uh, is how you update. Yes. If you want to upgrade, like if you want to switch to FreeBSD 12.3 when it comes out, or you decided it's, now is the time to go to 13.0, you'll have to use FreeBSD-update upgrade instead of fetch. And you have to tell it what version you want to upgrade to. Uh, but then the process is very similar after that. Uh, this, you know, FreeBSD update install, except for the install is done in three separate phases. You update just the kernel, then you want to reboot, then you update the rest of the operating system, and then you run the package upgrade, and then there's a third FreeBSD update install that you do, and that removes the old 12.2 libraries once you finish the package upgrade. Because if you remove those libraries before you do the package upgrade, your packages will be broken until you upgrade. Yep. Um, but that's all covered in the FreeBSD handbook. It's there. Uh, but yes, you are doing it mm -hmm. right. And if you're on ZFS, make sure to create a boot environment first so you always can get back if something went wrong. 
Yes. Um, yeah, so he says, I'm avoiding ports and other things, etc. until I understand them better. Is this correct? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, when you package install stuff, that's basically the same as what you would get from building the port, except for the port you can customize. And I mostly just use packages nowadays as well. Uh, you know, we, they've gotten to the point where there's very few times when I need to custom compile something. Yeah, uh, I will use the terminal command that I used to upgrade from 13 from 12 to 2 that I used to go from 12.1 to 12.2 in the future. Yeah, so third exactly. third thing, because there is no pathway to install my favorite browser Vivaldi, I installed the Iridium browser. Each time I open it, it asks if I want to set it as default. I have checked settings in the browser and system settings and cannot locate where to set it as default. Any clue? Firefox is also installed. Um. Usually, if you say yes, it just sets it as the default, but I don't know uh, what setting in KDE is checking for or what, why that's not. It sounds like it's asking, do you want this to be the default? You say yes, and the next time you start it, it forgets that and wants to ask again. Um, I'm guessing it'll be in KDE's control panel somewhere where you can control what the default web browser is. Because uh, the other thing is, if you open a, a link or something from KDE, does it start Firefox or Iridium? Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing could be there's a, a settings file somewhere that controls it and the user you're logged into the GUI as doesn't have permission to control it, but that should be in your home directory, so it shouldn't be that. I don't know. Yeah, that should be um, desktop environment wide setting, which is the default browser, which is used uh, wherever KDE is. Firefox is the default on my machine and it works. I don't know anything else. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely user specific for each one if you... <laughs> there are no other browsers um, doing the hand wave here. Um, no. <laughs> okay, then last, after years of exploring desktop environments, I've settled on KDE Plasma. Oh, uh, yeah, I always think I have settled on a desktop environment and then something else comes along. But yeah, settle on this for, for now. Okay. FreeBSD is not the most up-to-date operating system, but I am exploring an alternate, alternate to Kubuntu with my custom system updater script that I install on other computers as an alternate to Windows. If I can find a decent KDE script to install for FreeBSD along with an easy way to create a one-button updater like I have on Linux, I will seriously consider FreeBSD as an alternative for future installs instead of KDE and KDE. Thank you in advance. Yeah, um, I, with, with package base coming, that means that just running package upgrade uh, possibly twice, once for the OS, once for the apps, uh, will take care of the system updating for you. And then it should be all good. Yeah, I know it's 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 scary if you're if you're new to FreeBSD um, or to BSDs in general. But I think if you ask around enough, uh, there's also the KDE team. I'm not sure how quickly they respond to questions like this browser thing. It's worth trying. Or the FreeBSD forums. There's plenty of people there to help. Or uh, IRC. Or uh, what's the new thing nowadays? For which? Uh, yeah, that one. What? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Discord, Discord. Ah. There could be people who would be either have solved this already or know what to do. But yeah, you know, um, while FreeBSD update isn't the most friendly to automation or whatever, I've used it successfully to, like, I had a machine I installed as FreeBSD 6.1 in like 2007, I think, whenever 6.1 came out. And I upgraded it in place to every new version all the way up to 10.2, I think, before I finally gave up on that single core processor <laughs> in that machine. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly sure we will get along. Uh, you will find uh, the information you need. Cool. Moving on to Michael or M Michal. 
no e in there uh zfs question here we go uh hi in first place thank you for making a great podcast you're welcome glad you like it i have a small question about zfs i'm using freebsd 13 with zfs i know that i'm able to use native encryption with zpool zfs data set yes it's there it's in there but i don't know how or if it's possible to make root on zfs with native encryption i've tried with a separate boot partition with GPT ZFS boot, but it seems that the encrypted pool is not recognized there. I know that there is an option with Galley plus ZFS, but I want to have only native encryption on ZFS. Alan, take it away. So the FreeBSD bootloader, uh, or the FreeBSD bootstrap, GPT ZFS boot, does not yet support uh, ZFS encryption, and neither does the EFI uh, loader, uh, or the loader in general. So you can't encrypt the root file system that way. If you have a separate slash boot, uh, that has your kernel on it, then you could, but it really doesn't seem like it would help you very much. So if you want a separate slash boot, then you'd have to make that separate boot uh, be UFS, and you'd want to use GPT boot, not GPT ZFS boot, so that it would read the loader and kernel from that separate UFS partition. Once you do that, you've lost ZFS boot environments, and there's really not much point. So a real question is, why do you need your root partition to be encrypted? With how FreeBSD 13 is with ZFS, you can enable encryption on data sets like your home directory, but, uh, and then, you know, after the system boots, you have to run ZFS load key to enter the password before you can mount your home directory. Obviously, there's no system for that for doing it from the bootloader to be able to be you know, load the encryption key before you can read slash boot slash kernel slash kernel. But is there really value in encrypting your kernel, which is, you know, the stock FreeBSD 13 kernel that's the same as everybody else's. So what's the value in encrypting it there? You know, the main advantage to using ZFS dataset encryption instead of Gelly is that you can decide to do it only for parts of the disk that you need it for, whereas Gelly provides the whole disk. So if you really just want to encrypt everything, Gelly is better because ZFS encryption doesn't encrypt everything. Like the list of data sets and the names of the data sets and so on are not encrypted with ZFS encryption. Only the content of the actual files uh, and uh, the actual directory. So the file names are encrypted too, but that's about it. Uh, the main structure of ZFS itself is not encrypted because it has to be able to still do stuff without the encryption keys. What makes ZFS encryption so interesting is the fact that if you're not logged in and you don't need your home directory mounted, you can ZFS unload key for that data set. And now that data is actually at rest. The key's unloaded and the data is only accessible encrypted. And so it's actually protected from someone trying to read it, even though your computer's on. With something like Gelly, uh, once you enter the passphrase and the keys are loaded, not until you power off the machine are those keys gone. Or you have to export the pool and, and Gelly detach, but that doesn't work if it's your root pool. So... If you just want to encrypt everything, uh, Gelly is the better answer anyway. And the real advantage to ZFS uh, dataset encryption is that you can do different keys for different datasets and you can unload those keys when you don't need them. And that's what makes it really interesting. Um, and in those cases, I don't know if it makes sense to bother encrypting the root partition because it doesn't really contain anything that's uh, that secret, right? It's a copy of FreeBSD, which you know anybody can go and download for free. Be only paranoid where it makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, although in this case, it's mostly a matter of how much, is it worth all the effort and breakage to support encryption, uh, ZFS data set encryption in the bootloader for this? And 
At some point, probably yes, but right now it's just not that high on anybody's to-do list uh, because you have Gelly if you need it, uh, and Gelly is a better solution if you need that kind of encryption. Uh, and you know, the just doing your home directory and your application directory or your database and the, the things that you actually need uh, is more useful. Because uh, the other yeah, thing is, you can't enable encryption after the fact in ZFS. You have to, like, when you create the data set, you have to specify it will be encrypted so it can generate its master key. Once you've written data to a uh, not encrypted data set, you can't make it an encrypted data set. You have to make a new encrypted one and copy the files over. Yeah, yeah. similar with deduplication and uh, compression. Okay, uh, I think that should um, answer it. Uh, then next up is Tim with a Lumina and Snapshots question and since uh, JT took over development, as we heard in this episode, he also provided the answer for this one. So here's the question first. Hi, guys. I have a ZFS on a root system running FreeBSD. I installed Lumina DE, uh, including the file manager, Lumina file manager. I have not been able to view snapshots via Lumina-FM, however. Apparently, there's supposed to be some type of backups button that appear in the toolbar when you select a data set that has snapshots, but I can't get it, nor the timeline slider or similar to appear. I did some searching online, but only found some old PCBSD forum posts of which I had a solution of not using a soft link. I confirmed that I'm not using a soft link, but still no joy. Any idea how can I get this functionality to appear would be greatly appreciated. And JT, our producer, replies, you are correct. The Lumina file manager should be able to browse through past snapshots of the directory you are in. I spoke with Ken about this, and this is what he came up with. First, your dataset is not readable by the user, root only, or some such thing for the base dataset dir. And second, you don't have the snap dir property set up correctly, so the hidden .zfs-snapshot dir is not browsable. Ah, okay. Yeah, so the, the tool in Lumina depends on the .zfs directory uh, to get the list of snapshots. So that will only exist at the root of each dataset. So if you have a data set for, say, user home, but you're in user home Benedict, there won't be a .zfs directory there. It'll be one level up. Whereas if you actually create a separate data set for user home Benedict, then it will have its own .zfs directory. Like I do. Yep. And that's useful. Um, the other thing to do might be using, kind of like we talked about with the observability article at the very beginning of the show, use Truss, run Truss Lumina FM, and then try and see what error it's get when it's trying to access that does ZFS directory. And that might help you figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Something like permission denied or something. Uh, yeah. Um, points you there. If, if the permissions on the parent directory don't let you descend into it, you won't be able to find the hidden magic .zfs directory. Yeah. And that's probably the cause. Okay. I think that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening as always. And uh, make sure to listen to the next week's episode because there we continue the uh, two-part series. 